Thank you, Walter, for that very kind introduction. Uh, thank you also to the Middle East Center, uh, particularly to Rabia. Thank you ever so much for tolerating all sorts of peculiar requests at the last minute. Um, and to the Middle East Center in general uh, for the invitation. Michael Willis, who alas cannot be with us today, suggested it a couple of years ago, and for scheduling reasons, I couldn't make it until today. I'm immensely pleased that we managed to find a way to do it, and I'm honored that there was the continued interest. Um, and I'd also like to mention Eugene Rogan, the director of the center, was kind enough to help make it happen. Of course, alongside our very kind host for the evening, Walter. So thank you again. Um, it's rather fortuitous for me to be here today for a number of reasons. The first is the location. I used to live about three minutes away from here in nearby Jericho. I'm not originally from Oxford. Um, my father's from the Sussex countryside, and my mother's from Cairo, but of all the cities that I've lived in in the UK, Oxford is where I'm most comfortable. It's where I used to be a member of the Oxford Centre for Islamic Studies once upon a time. It's where I chose to live when I was working at the FCO in London, and it's where my daughter was born. So I'm very fond of the city and I'm very glad to be here today. There's another fortuitous reason to be here, and Okay, uh, well, let's, let's try this and see if it goes, goes it going to play. That's better? Okay, good. Um, so as, uh, as Walter alluded to, a few months after my daughter was born in 2010, my wife and I decided to move to Cairo. It was a cold winter in Oxford at the time, and uh, I'd just finished a multi-country project in Southeast Asia, and I was considering next moves, and the idea was that Cairo would be a good place to write my next book. I had in mind to do one on Muslim minority communities in Africa and Asia, and, and Cairo to me was just the right place. Nothing ever happened in Cairo. It was very boring. Um, it was noisy. It was full of traffic and so on, but there wasn't any turbulence or upheaval or anything like that. And we had family in Cairo to help out with a new addition to our family. The place was utterly stable. As I said, nothing ever happens in Cairo. That was December 1st, 2010. Um, my plans did not work out very well. I never wrote that book, actually. Um, and a little more than five years later, I find myself back in Oxford in the final stages of completing another book entirely on Egypt. Because a few short weeks after I arrived in the city in which nothing ever happened, the revolutionary uprising of the 25th of January happened. And my life and the lives of my family and the lives of so many in Egypt and beyond would never be quite the same again. That stability, in quotation marks, that we thought in 2010 was so stable, really wasn't. And five years later, I wonder if we've truly learned that lesson. That brings me to the next reason why today is so fortuitous, and it's because it is indeed the 25th of January today. It's five years to the day, to the hour, actually. If you think back precisely to that day in 2011, the clashes were beginning in Cairo and elsewhere, where the fight was on to reclaim the public space for the ordinary Egyptian citizen. It's a very funny thing to write about a book about events you actually live through. As a writer and as a commentator, um, I've written a great deal over the last five years, probably hundreds of opinion pieces and analytical pieces and commentary and so forth, and in the internet age, much of that is all very easily accessible, and I've had the opportunity to reflect on much of how I thought at the time of so much, of how I considered this particular day or this particular event, and it's really quite interesting. It's fascinating, for example, that for someone who became so inspired and enamored 
by the idea of the 25th of January, at the time, I was remarkably skeptical. I really was. Um, many people I knew in Cairo, I see one of them sitting up here, um, thought that, hey, if it happened in Tunisia, why couldn't it happen here? And I was utterly unimpressed by the entire notion. That changed, of course, but looking back in time, a lot had to happen first. And here I am, five years later, but feeling 20 years older. Um, every Egyptian knows that feeling. Um, and very grateful, truly grateful, for having had the opportunity to have lived through those first days in 2011. Even if my heart was broken and healed and broken and healed again so many times. It's a little peculiar perhaps to speak in such terms. Um, I hope you'll allow me some latitude this evening because it is indeed the 25th of January. And after all, we're supposed to be academics. We're supposed to claim this analytical high ground where we are somehow disconnected or aloof from those subjects that we study and research. But if such a high ground exists, and I would argue it really doesn't, um, I certainly did not inhabit it when it came to Egypt. Yes, I'm an academic. I've had my own academic positions. I've been at Warwick as a senior fellow. I've been a professor of law at AUC in Cairo. And yes, I'm an analyst, having been at Brookings and later on with the Atlantic Council in Rusi. But I also lived through those events, 2011, 2012, and 2013, and right up until now. And I can't claim, and I also wouldn't want to claim, some kind of distance, even if it might have been better for my blood pressure and state of mind. But for my generation of Arabs, and in as much as I'm an Englishman, I'm also an Arab, 2011 was not a time of disconnection. 2011 was a time of reconnection, par excellence, with pain, with glory, with suffering, and with joy. Now, today, I don't want to talk too much. Uh, for those who are interested in my ramblings, and God help you if so, I hope, indeed, my book will be out later on in the year um, with Hearst and OUP, but... Um, today, I want to touch on a number of themes and issues, and I've been told I, uh, I ought to advertise the book more, more heavily, but I'm not going to do that. I want to bring out some of these themes. I want to have the opportunity for us to discuss some of them, um, and particularly to hear your own thoughts and engage with you as well. I see a number of people in the audience who are at least as engaged as I was in Egypt for the last five years, and there are those of you who benefit from a much fresher perspective, I'm sure, but there are some things that I want to pick up from the outset uh, by perhaps picking up on some phrases that are quite common in the international narrative on Egypt today. And the first one, which I think will kick up a number of things, is the 25th of January, is it in hibernation? It's a very interesting sort of idea. And it reminds or it brings us back to the idea of what was the 25th of January and what it is today. And for the core of what I would term as the quote-unquote revolutionary camp, i.e. those who sought democratization to the Egyptian state, it meant reform along the lines of bread, freedom, social justice, human dignity, and were unaligned to either more, I'd say, right-wing forms of Islamism on the one hand, and the Egyptian military-backed status quo on the other. And for them, for this core group of revolutionary activists, uh, the 25th of January was certainly not um, a singular event. 
from their perspective, and I'm generalizing here, the protests that led to the removal of Hosni Mubarak on the 11th of February in 2011, uh, these events were not the culmination of the Egyptian revolution. Rather, the removal of Hosni Mubarak was a side effect of that revolutionary uprising, but the revolution itself had not succeeded or been fulfilled. Now, I hasten to add, this was actually not a very um, common assertion. In fact, this was not the case for the vast majority of Egyptians, including those, incidentally, who participated in the protests themselves. Take the Muslim Brotherhood, for example, a group we'll come back to later on. The Muslim Brotherhood, until the coup of 2013, and we'll come back also to that, viewed the revolution of 2011 as a success, um, and in that regard began to chart a path that was rather distinct from that of the early revolutionary core that was developing at the time. And again, in this regard, the MB were not particularly different from most Egyptians. Most viewed the 18 days of uprising as a revolution, which had been successful, and thus ended on the 11th of February. Now, Mubarak stalwarts obviously disagreed with that. Um, they didn't view it, obviously, as a revolution. Um, ironically, it's one of the few things that they, uh, they probably have in common with the revolutionary camp for very different reasons. Um, which again viewed the departure of Hosni Mubarak as a side effect, if a necessary one, of the uprising, but not necessarily leading to a success of that revolution. And it's interesting to consider who or how that was right, uh, and something that will bring us uh, back to 2016 later on. The regime of Mubarak, and it was a regime, something, you know, words that we, uh, we use to describe this current political administration are very important. Mubarak's regime was indeed a regime. Um, it did fall, but it was never dismantled, nor did it disappear. Its main pivot of power was removed, um, but so the elements of that regime fragmented, perhaps hid for a while, and then regrouped for a number of counter-revolutionary moves in 2012 as well as 2013. The Brotherhood also saw the revolution as a success, and they moved in the next couple of years as though they had also been successful in gaining the hearts and minds of most Egyptians, neutralizing the army establishment and Mubarak stalwarts in the process. And the events of, of the summer of 2013 seem to indicate that they might have been somewhat mistaken in that regard. As for the revolutionary camp, over the course of 2011 to 2013, there were perhaps two or three points where it had had the ability to effect critical change, but it failed to capitalize. Very naturally, I might add, but it failed to capitalize on what had been achieved in 2011, and the array of forces that populated the public square, in private and in public, uh, beyond Mubarak's falling, that made it a, a task of huge proportions to even change the direction of the tidal waves that were evolving from particularly the middle of 2011 onwards let alone create new tidal waves of their own. So is thus the 25th of January moment, as opposed to movement, maybe that's a better way of talking about it, is it indeed in hibernation? Again, something we'll come back to, but I want to say something here. That, that revolutionary moment had its core in the civil rights communities and human rights groups, along with a smattering of political activists and journalists back in 2011. And that was a culmination of a number of processes that had been leading to that point, going back to the early 2000s. In 2016, there are far more people who share those ideas, 
in terms of absolute numbers. We're not talking here in percentages. We're talking here in terms of absolute numbers. There are far more. And at the same time, however, the array of forces stacked against them are far more focused and intent in ensuring that what happened in 2011 may never happen again. As we sit here today, we were talking about this earlier, in Cairo, the Egyptian authorities have gone to a surprisingly paranoid set of measures in the past few days and weeks against any kind of mobilization in Egypt. I think on the 21st, they started populating Tahrir Square with tanks and APCs. And, you know, very strangely, because I don't think that anybody truly uh, who really understands what Egypt is, is like actually thought that there was going to be any sort of mass mobilization today. The Revolutionary Corps in particular knows that public opinion is against it, particularly against the backdrop of anti-state radical Islamist violence um, and a number of other geopolitical issues in the region that make that very unlikely. Um, I don't think that even the Muslim Brotherhood uh, leadership outside of the country really believes that uh, an uprising is around the corner and so far, even as much as it might want one. Um, I think everybody knows that the security forces are not only unreformed, but are emboldened in many ways. And the state surely knows all of this as well. And the only reason that one can conceive that the state has gone to so many efforts in the last week or so, including the arrest of Facebook page administrators and uh, arrests and detainments, is that this day is a disturbing reminder. It's a reminder of the day when the Egyptian state lost to a bunch of ragtag ruffians, otherwise known in history as patriots. Today in Western capitals, the discussion then revolves around a very simple question. Are we likely to see a repeat of 2011 at some point or not? Is there going to be a revolutionary uprising part two? Um, after all, dissent is growing, isn't it? Uh, the army general who would be president has not been able to deliver the economic prospects that were supposed to manifest themselves post-removal of the Muslim Brotherhood president. Security con concerns still plague the country in a number of different ways. The media reminds us of that on a very regular daily, if not hourly basis, and the structural problems that faced Egypt in 2010 leading up to 2011 remain and are intensified. And indeed, some of my own analytical colleagues, more so in the U.S. than in the U.K., I might add, argue that Egypt now is in the same sort of state that it was in the last few months of the Morsi administration. On the other end of the spectrum, you have those within the, how it's called, the pro-Sisi camp, who argue that the president has tremendous popular support, that certainly people are not amazingly happy, but they would prefer Sisi over every, anyone else, and that Egyptians will tighten their belts as they get through this period, which will eventually pass. Maybe somewhere in between the truth of the matter actually lies. Because indeed, the structural problems of 2010 not only continue to exist, but they've intensified in ways that ought to concern and worry any Egyptian leader. They would have done so anyway, frankly, um, regardless of the turmoil that has happened in the past few years. That turmoil has only intensified and quickened that process. But there's something that I, I think people tend to forget, uh, and this is why when, when I hear comparisons being made between Mubarak and Sisi, the regime in 2016 and the regime in 2010, uh, I'm not sure that people quite understand how the Egyptian political dispensation today actually functions. 
As I said, Mubarak was indeed a regime, and he was a regime par excellence. Control, tentacles, um, the relationships are, were very, very specific and clear. When it comes to 2016, this is very different. And again, I'm not talking here about good policies or bad policies. Let's take that out of the equation for the moment. I'm talking about how the state actually functions. So rather than having a singular regime run by a single person at the top and then it's sort of filtered out down below, I would argue that today, rather than having a single regime, you probably have anything from five to eight regimes operating as islands in a broad mass of an administration. And one of the few things that they agree on is that they don't like the Muslim Brotherhood. That's about it. There's not very much else that they seem to have entirely uh, strong commitments of cohesion with. Uh, and you see that in certain examples. You see that, for example, with how the Jazeera trial, something that the Egyptian presidency was not particularly enthusiastic about because it was frankly quite embarrassing, um, how that played out and how the Egyptian judiciary moved in certain ways, how the Egyptian security establishment moved in certain ways. You have that um, playing out with the arrest of somebody like Salah Diab, okay, um, who uh, is the owner of Al-Masul one of the, lar- actually the, the most widely circulated private newspaper in Egypt, um, a, a stalwart of the previous system, uh, pre-2011, uh, and yet not only arrested, but arrested in a pretty you know, humiliating fashion. Um, coming into his house at 6 o'clock in the morning, arresting him, arresting members of his family, um, putting handcuffs, taking pictures, and releasing those pictures to the press, which is quite unusual and something that I think is a bit difficult to imagine in 2010 or under, again, Mubarak's regime. And it goes deeper than that because of the family relationships that exist between somebody like Salah Diab and very senior Emirati officials, and the United Arab Emirates being one of the main international supporters of Cairo at present. But something, and again, trying to think, would this have happened in 2010? Uh, Would this have happened under Mubarak, uh, considering the close relationships between Cairo and the UAE at present, um, and particularly the officials that were involved? Um, I don't think so. But I think that you begin to understand that when you begin to break down the idea that this actually isn't a singular regime at all. When we look at some of the elements of that, of that new political dispensation, which again is evolving, um, you see some, in some analytical circles the idea that the Egyptian military is eventually going to turn on Abdel Fattah Hassisi. I'm, I'm not sure how realistic that is. Um, and people point out, you know, they got rid of Mubarak, they got rid of Morsi, why wouldn't they get rid of Sisi if they decided that that was what needed to happen? Um, and again, I, I wonder if we're all talking about the same country. Uh, Mohammed Morsi is not even an issue. He was not from the military establishment, um, so thus didn't have that sort of immunity. Uh, when it came to Hosni Mubarak, um, he had indeed come from the military ranks, but he had been out of the military for several decades. Um, and as a result, these, uh, these institutions began to evolve on their own. Uh, when it comes to uh, the current presidency, the top leadership of the Egyptian military um, are very closely aligned with him, and I don't think that that's going to change anytime soon, but perhaps we can see that in 
many years to come. So we, we look at that side of the equation, those that make up the elements of this new political dispensation. And there are other elements. There will be the judiciary, as I mentioned. There will be the security establishment, as I mentioned. Um, there will be the media apparatus in another way. We wait to, uh, I'll come back to the parliament, but we wait to see if the parliament will be established as a new element within this new political dispensation or not, um, which will be its own new power note. We don't know yet. But looking on the other side of the equation, which are those who oppose the current dispensation, um, and those are obviously led by Islamist forces, and the mainstream Islamist movement in Egypt continues to be the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, where do they stand? What is their situation in 2016? Now, I'll dwell on this a little bit because I think it's important. The, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, um, I'm not going to get into how the trends in the Muslim Brotherhood have historically evolved. That would be another lecture. But uh, going back to 2011 in terms of support and popularity, and in this regard, I'm, I'm drawing on a lot of the uh, public opinion poll data that I had access to in 2011-2012 when I was working with Gallup. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood came to around 12 to 15 percent okay, in, uh, I think it was March, actually, March 2011. Okay, so 12 to 15 percent of Egyptians answered that they had confidence in the Muslim Brotherhood in March 2011. That number steadily rises through 2011, okay, but steadily, but quite respectably. You know, uh, you get to the summer, you get to about September of 2011, and 22% of the Egyptian population answered, we have confidence in the Muslim Brotherhood at that point. Elections for parliament happened towards the end of 2011, November and December. By the time elections come around, that number has gone from, again, 12 to 15 at the beginning of 2011, it goes to 50. It goes to 50 by the end of 2011, December to be precise. And by April of 2012, it's 60, sorry, March of 2012, it's 66%. 66% of Egyptians in March of 2012 said they had confidence in the Muslim Brotherhood. By any measure, that's incredibly impressive. And then it all goes downhill. It all begins to collapse um, right from March, February 2012. Um, I frankly have no way of knowing how that happened, how that suddenly that particular point was, was the pinpoint. Um, the only th major thing that happened in those months was that parliamentary sessions were aired on national television. Um, if that's the reason, that's incredibly intriguing, um, especially considering some of the sessions that are happening right now in the Egyptian parliament. But anyway, um, the, uh, uh, the fact is, is that it goes from 12 to 15 all the way up to 66 and then begins to plummet. So when you have presidential elections take place in the, in the spring, late spring of 2012, Mohamed Morsi uh, does well, but he actually does pretty badly considering how popular the Brotherhood had been. Okay? Um, he gets obviously into the runoff, he beats Ahmed Shafi. Uh, it was a close race, but he beats Ahmed Shafi. Um, he would have not beaten Ahmed Shafi had it been anybody else on the ballot, and Ahmed Shafi wouldn't have come anywhere close had it also been someone else on the ballot. But you know that's the nature of 2012's presidential election. When you get to 
a year after that. Okay, and all of this is happening within the space of literally 24 months. You know, um, the Brotherhood continues to lose popularity. So uh, we see polls around uh, late May of 2013, and three separate questions. Muslim Brotherhood, FJP, the Freedom and Justice Party of the Muslim Brotherhood, the political wing, and Mohamed Morsi. Okay, three separate entities in a questionnaire. Um, getting anything from 18 to 24% of the Egyptian population expressing confidence. The lowest was Mohamed Morsi. The lowest was Mohamed Morsi. Um, intriguingly, when you cross-reference that with people who said that they voted for Mohamed Morsi in round one, okay, not round two, not as, well, we don't want Ahmed Shafi, no, in round one, um, his numbers were not particularly good. So Muhammad Morsi wasn't even that popular even within the Muslim Brotherhood at that time when we get to the, uh, the spring and, and early summer of 2013. So when the, uh, the protests begin in June 2013, um, and we can talk more about how Tamarrud began, um, how, and I think this is very clear for everybody now, how it was, it was infiltrated and backed, um, even though at the time that was very clear anyway, and I, don't, uh, I didn't really see many Egyptians thinking that this was a great revelation, but, but anyway, um, you see that when you get to maybe the middle of June, this is like two weeks or three weeks before the protests begin, um, the Brotherhood, Hamid Morsi, FJP, quite unpopular. The Egyptian military, incredibly popular. Incredibly popular, including with, incidentally, supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood. This, again, obviously, is pre-July 3rd. When you get to the protest beginning, um, and a few days later, um, the then Defense Minister, Abu Fattah Sisi, now obviously the President, removing Mohammed Morsi uh, in a coup, um, I had many, uh, many colleagues and analysts in in Washington, uh, less so in London, more so in Washington than anywhere else, but even in London, um, thinking that uh, this had to be something that the Egyptian uh, people would rise up against, that they would oppose, um, and that this could never stand. And I found that to be a very strange reading of events, because it was very clear that the Egyptian military had very large support on the Egyptian streets, has done throughout this entire process, is probably at its lowest point in the summer of 2013, to be fair, but still a critical majority of the Egyptian people. Um, whether or not it was a good idea is another question entirely, but we're talking here about the popularity of certain moves, not if they're good ideas. I think good ideas are another question entirely. This incidentally, this reading of, of the Egyptian scene, I assure you, is not shared by the Muslim Brotherhood, but never mind. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood then has its own Karbala moment, okay? And those of you who study Islamic history will know what I'm referring to. Um, August 14th in 2013, uh, pro-Morsi sit-ins by supporters of the ousted president. Um, Human Rights Watch declared it a, probably, probably a crime against humanity uh, with around a thousand people being killed in not a day, that's, that's not fair, in about 10 hours. Um, I think that uh, Egypt has yet to see the repercussions of that day. 
but I don't think that we ought to assume that it never will. And that's something very, very heartbreaking for any, any Egyptian thinking about uh, the future of their country. Um, as a result of, um, of the breakup of the sit-in, the, the Muslim Brotherhood engages in a set of policies, um, domestically and internationally. Domestically, protest. The tool of, uh, of moving is going to be the protest, the march, um, and eventually the uh, government will fall, um, the people will overcome, and uh, Mohammed Morsi will be reinstated as president. That's the, that's the local domestic sort of strategy. On the international level, it's more about lobbying. It's the lobby, it's going to different uh, capitals and saying that we are the Democrats, um, we've been ousted, this isn't fair, you should stand up for democratic principles, and so on. Um, now, that's been, that policy has been in place for more than two years and uh, has not succeeded in actually changing anything on the ground. Um, protests happen um, increasingly infrequently in very small areas, in, in areas that are designed to be safer, so in very small sort of alleyways and so on, um, to avoid confrontation with the Egyptian security state. Um, but they're certainly not attracting more, uh, more people, which is not surprising considering the incredibly repressive protest law, um, but they're not going anywhere. Um, as a result of that failure of policy, which is still officially in place, um, you see trends begin to, dev- uh, begin to emerge within the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, the majority trend is quite firm on that policy. Okay, um, and they seem, uh, according to the analysis that I've seen, they seem to have the majority of the funds, okay, of the group. Um, there is another trend, it's a minority trend, but it's still a trend, that has decided that actually this isn't working. We've got to try something else. Um, simply protesting and lobbying isn't actually getting us anywhere. Um, and alas, with the, the type of rhetoric that unfortunately has become very commonplace within Egyptian politics um, on all sides, excuse me, incidentally, um, there's only really one direction that such uh, a rethinking can go, and it's not one that is likely to be very uh, very comforting for the Egyptian state, uh, but also for Egypt in general. Um, And we've seen accusations of uh, political violence coming from members of the Muslim Brotherhood. This is all very murky, and I'd like us to consider this for a second. Tier 1, Tier 2, and Tier 3 of the Muslim Brotherhood are either in jail or out of the country. So command and control over um, not only members but supporters of the group is very difficult to ascertain. Um, there have been new elections that have taken place inside the country that are supposed to manage this, but you see infighting taking place all the time. Um, and it sometimes spills out into official brother, well, official and unofficial Muslim Brotherhood media. Um, and, and this is also happening against the backdrop of uh, the Muslim Brotherhood is blamed for literally everything. Uh, there were floods in Alexandria last year, and that was apparently the work of the Muslim Brotherhood. I'm not sure how they co- have command over the elements, but it seems that they do. Um, every attack that takes place is automatically the responsibility of the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, I suspect that some acts of violence are carried out by either supporters or members of the Muslim Brotherhood. It stands to reason just logically, but the evidence hasn't been provided. Um, I'm sure that some of you know of the Muslim Brotherhood Review that was carried out by uh, Cameron's government um, and released last year. 
um, I assure you that um, had there been such evidence, it would have been provided by the Egyptian government to the Cameron Review. Um, that certainly didn't seem to feature in the final conclusions, uh, regardless of the fact that they said that it could be a possible indicator of extremism, but not a terrorist organization. Um, so trying to come to a fully articulated picture about where the Brotherhood stands in terms of that nebulous universe of violence is, uh, is certainly more, uh, more dubious than the Egyptian state would have us presently believe. I want to move on to a few other things. The first is how uh, democratic uh, the current Egyptian political dispensation actually is, because after all, they declared a roadmap in 2013 um, they have fulfilled all of the uh, apparent milestones of the roadmap. Um, that's the official line, by the way. There were actually elements in that roadmap that have been swept to one side entirely, including um, about media as well as national reconciliation. But never mind, we'll, we'll forget about that for the time being. Um, when it comes to electoral processes, there's been a new constitution, and it has been voted on. Um, we shall talk about how good the vote was, but that's happened. Um, presidential election has also happened. Uh, yes, 95%, but never mind. You know, uh, There has been a vote that has taken place. When it comes to parliament, um, there has been a parliamentary election, and there's a new legislature in place. Yes, with Murtada Mansour, head of human rights, but never mind. Uh, this has happened. There is a new parliament in place. So what can we expect from that new parliament? I'm pausing because I can't think of anything to say. Um, I can't actually think of many things to expect from that new parliament. Um, it's not quite a rubber stamp parliament in the classic sense, in that, again, because of the diffuse nature of how power is now applied and operationalized in this new setup, um, parliament isn't quite as... Um, Malleable, I suppose, would be the word. Um, and you've seen that in a few things that have happened so far, right? So the, uh, the civil service law, okay, was rejected. Um, that certainly didn't make the presidency very happy. Um, that, and that was made very clear, okay? Um, so there will be moments of tension. That was a moment of tension I did not expect. I, expect, I expected and I continue to expect that there will be tension uh, when it comes to issues around fiscal policy, around business policies, because indeed big business is represented in that parliament and they operate with their own interests in mind. Um, so there will be that. But when it comes to issues like human rights and political freedoms, I'm not, I'm not sure that we, we can expect too much there and we wait to see what's going to happen in that regard. Beyond the roadmap, um, what are the, the other challenges that have faced this new dispensation and will continue to face. And primary among these, I think, are security challenges. Okay? Um, and I tend to see the security challenges in Egypt um, split up into four. Okay? Uh, the first, obviously, will be Sinai. And in Sinai, there's been a running insurgency for quite some time. Um, uh, I hasten to add, because this is a point that I think people don't always get, um, Sinai as a problem did not begin in 2013. Okay? Sinai as an issue, as a security issue, did not begin when Mohammed Morsi was arrested by the Egyptian military. Okay? This, this is a talking point, I'm afraid, that has been pushed by a number of people, but uh, I, that's simply historically not accurate. Indeed, Sinai as a security problem, uh, if we're talking about Ansar Bet al-Maqdis, for example, predates even 2011. 
Okay, so uh, and if you really want to look at the roots of Ansar Bet al-Maqdis, simply as the group, not about the factors that lead to it or anything, but simply as the group, it goes back years before that. But certainly when you get to 2013 um, and the removal of Mohammed Morsi, um, that certainly sends uh, a very particular message to the, uh, to the insurgents in Sinai. It makes recruitment, I suppose, easier in certain ways. Um, but uh, the, the fact is, is that in 2016, we're still talking about um, a very radical Islamist group, which is now obviously pledged to ISIS. Most of them, Sabah uh, al pledged to ISIS, not all of them. Um, and that still exists, and that's not going anywhere. Um, the split in the Muslim Brotherhood, I think, is a potential security challenge as well for us to face, uh, or at least that Egypt will face in the coming years. Um, and it's quite, uh, it's quite unpredictable as what's going to happen in that regard. Will there be a genuine split, in which case people will simply leave the organization altogether? Will they stay in the organization but simply not listen to what they're being told? Um, will the leadership decide to take more of a blind eye because they know they can't control them anyway? Um, you know, there are all sorts of things that can happen in this regard. But I think that that split um, is certainly quite worrying. Um, a few days ago, you saw this attack. Uh, well, not attack. It was, it was, a, it was a bomb operation um, in an apartment in Giza. Um, where police were summoned to ostensibly arrest members of the Muslim Brotherhood who were ostensibly with weapons. Um, they were drawn in, and then the apartment was blown up. Okay? And uh, a group called Revolutionary Punishment okay, claimed the attack, although an account linked to ISIS also claimed the attack, but it, it strikes me as, uh, as an operation that's far more similar to those uh, carried out by Revolutionary Punishment, even though Revolutionary Punishment has been off the grid for a few months. Um, it's entirely possible that groups like that may evolve in the coming months or even years. We don't know. And when we look at how groups have split and you know, fragmented from such backgrounds in the past, uh, you know, nothing's off the table. The third security challenge, in my opinion, will come um, from just basically ISIS. Um, you see different cells uh, springing up in Egypt, you obviously have ISIS in the Sinai, but you also have ISIS in Cairo. You also have ISIS in other parts of the country. And uh, I think that that's going to continue to be uh, an issue, uh, for example, with the, the downing of the Russian jet and other things as well. Um, every security analyst that I know that looks at Egypt at all um, is frankly very surprised that we haven't seen more attacks over the past couple of years, particularly against foreigners. Um, and I think that that's something that a lot of people expect insofar as it's a very very bad thing to, to want to happen, um, but I think that people have to expect that. Um, and the fourth uh, security challenge that I would identify uh, comes on the western border, okay, um, with Libya. And some of these other elements might combine in that regard, but as Libya continues to be um, uh, an issue that hasn't yet been solved or resolved uh, in spite of the fact that there is now a government of national unity but I don't think that it's really taken off yet um, we've already seen that there's been uh, clashes in the western de desert um, there have been attacks claimed on Egyptian military forces um, one of the things that we learnt about the tragic uh, killing of the Mexican tourists last year is that indeed the military and radical movements are fighting in that part of the country. Um, keeping in mind that in many of these areas, it's very difficult to get a full picture as to what's going on, because media 
media coverage there is incredibly controlled. Um, so that's a fourth, that, a fourth security challenge that I find particularly worrying. Where does this go? Um, and here I'm, I'm sort of wrapping up to the end of what I wanted to address today. Egypt in 2016, 90 million people. 90 million people. It's a young population. It's very surprisingly young population. The average age of, of an Egyptian is 24, and it's dropping. Okay? Um, it's around 70% of the population that's under the age of 35. Okay? Um, this is a huge demographic challenge. Um, now, it's one that might be welcomed in certain ways. There are some countries in the world that suffer from a declining birth rate and you know, worry about not having enough people uh, in the future. Egypt does not have that problem. On the contrary, it has too many people to be able to provide economically for jobs, um, a good standard of living, healthcare, education. Um, all of these things are very serious in the Egyptian context and no real solutions being offered in that regard. And it strikes me that that simply doesn't, doesn't work. Um, the, the, the political arrangement, as it were, between the, uh, between the Egyptian population pre-2010, particularly in the early 2000s, where you know, um, political liberalization is not such a priority, but stability exists as well as economic prosperity in a certain way. Um, and again, in a certain way, I'll get back to that, um, that that's, that's, an, that's a deal that we can handle. Now, in 2010, just before the protests began in Tunisia, both Tunisia and Egypt had rising GDPs. Okay? Both Tunisia and Egypt were supposedly doing well, economically speaking. Okay? And yet, time and again, opinion polls showed that the average Egyptian and the average Tunisian was not getting any happier. On the contrary, they were feeling more and more hopeless about the future, more and more despair. So on the broad national level, yes, the economy was getting better, but trickle-down simply didn't happen. Okay? And when you see those things intersecting, it's literally a few months later that you see the uprising begin in Tunisia. That's not the case today. It's much worse today. Today, the economy is far worse off than it was in 2010, far worse off. The population is far younger, um, and all of, the, uh, all of the structural issues continue to remain. Now, I'm often asked, um, is the genie not out of the bottle? Didn't 2011 sort of allow something to erupt that can never be placed back in? There's, there's a point to that, but I think that there's a larger point and that, that there is no bottle, that the bottle has been smashed and the mist is actually all over the place. Where do things go from here when there's such fragmentation on the ground? And I'm not sure I, I know the answer to that. I'm not sure anyone does. But then who really knew what was going to happen in 2011? And I'll, um, I'll tell you something that, uh, that happened, at least for me, in 2013. And, in, uh, in March or April 2013, I was at King's uh, in London. I was giving a talk about Egypt, um, and I argued that in July, I mentioned the date, I said in July of 2013, I believe there will be a military coup against Mohamed Morsi. Honestly, I completely forgot that I ever said that. 
Okay, until July 3rd, and I, again, I still forgot, until somebody wrote to me from King's and said, wow, you're really good. You, you actually predicted this down to the month. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And then he sent me my own, my own remarks. Um, I said, that's, that's true, but I got that completely wrong. And I did, because I thought that it would be July because of economic issues, because it was the summer, which is the hottest month of the year, which means that there's far more demands on electricity consumption. Um, I knew that electricity was already becoming a problem, and it's Ramadan. Ramadan is the most expensive month of the year. I thought all of these things put together would result in riots, and uh, just as we saw in Suez earlier in the year, right, in uh, January and February of 2013, where the army came out and they took over, um, but only in that part, uh, that small part of the country, I thought that that would happen in July because of the intersection of all of those events. So things can be very erratic and things can be very unpredictable. I don't think anybody really perceived uh, in March or April of 2013 that you know, uh, all of this was going to happen. Um, I don't even think that people realized um, after Morsi was removed from power um, that Rabah would work out the way that it did. Not, not at first, anyway. I think people have to wait for a week or so. So things are very erratic, is what I'm trying to say. I think that there's so many variables that are on the ground that constantly change. Um, again, personally, I expected over the last couple of years that we would see far more examples of militant political violence in Egypt. Far more than this. Far more. I didn't, I, I didn't buy the whole civil war sort of is, uh, idea, the Algerian scenario, all of this, it, it didn't strike me as working at all because of demographics and a lot of other issues. But I thought that there would be a lot more in terms of reprisals uh, against the state uh, from radical Islamist actors. And that hasn't happened. Um, is it not going to happen? I don't know. Um, I don't hope for any violence to happen in Egypt, of course. Um, but you never know what's going to happen. But one thing is very clear. One thing is very sure, um, and that's the factors that led to the 25th of January in the first place. They're still there. They've not gone away. If anything, they've intensified. And if we dream that the spirits and the souls of this Egyptian generation is more tameable, is more manageable, well, I think we've distinctly misunderstood history. They surprised us once. I suspect one way or another they'll do so again. Thank you very much.